Thank you, Emily. 1 Samuel chapter 27. A few years ago, an atheist committee, they published this tract. And what they were doing, they thought they were doing, they were exposing the depravity of various Bible heroes. Those we look up to, those that are the pillars of faith. And they said of Abraham, here was a coward who was willing to sacrifice the honor of his wife to save his own skin. So they, they read their Bible pretty well there. And of course, they reference that place where the Bible admits that uh, God will call Abraham still a friend of his, a friend of God. And they question God. What kind of God, they would ask, that would befriend so dishonorable of a man? And then they went to Jacob, and they, they, they spoke about Jacob being a liar and a cheat. And God still made him the prince of his people. And they were saying, what does this say about the character of deity who would call himself the God of Jacob? And they continued, of course, with Moses, saying that he was a murderer. Of course, he was. And God chose him to bring his law into the world. But of all those, David was the worst. They spoke of his seduction of Bathsheba. And then he had her, she, he had her husband kill Uriah, covered that up. And God still called him the man after his own heart. And they would ask what kind of God could find so much praise in such a man, and why would anyone serve this kind of God? And we need to understand how do believers reconcile those things. The first thing we need to understand is what the atheists said about these heroes of of the faith is truthful. Every one of these men were heathens. They were lawbreakers. And yet God loved them. God did a work in them. And what it shows is the glorious grace that Yahweh presents when he calls unregenerate man to him. By faith we are saved through grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I love this about the Bible because the Bible lays out the flaws of everyone we look up to. And everyone is flawed in the scriptures except, of course, for the great King, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. I love that about the scriptures. Paul says, God justifies the ungodly. And on that, we can all agree on. And the difference is that what we see this, when we see this of God, what it shows is his glory when he's willing to forgive sinners like us and calls us into his family. And as we're going to look at this account tonight in chapter 27, chapter 27 is one of the, probably one of David's saddest points, one of his biggest flaws except for his sin with Bathsheba in in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Because here David 
shows his ineptitude, his great failure in not trusting in the God of Israel. And he begins not to only trust God, but he, 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 tr- he, he does not trust him when he's in pressure is on him. Anxiety is on him. Affliction is upon him. And instead of believing the promises of God that God has spoke through him, through, through Samuel, through Abigail, through Saul himself, he uses his own devices And you won't hear David writing the Psalms here. He won't be meditating on the word of God because he's compromised. And that's what we'll look at. Verse 1 tells us, And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. David's movement centers on his sudden failure, once again, to believe the promises of God. And he may have never said this out loud. He may have never said it to anyone else. He may have never said it even to God. But the issue is David said it in his own heart. What we see in our heart has tremendous power to shape our thinking, our actions, even our entire destiny. When David is not acting by faith, you know why, because his actions begin to be sudden, and they begin to be brief. All of a sudden, he starts doing different things. David says, there is nothing better for me. I have no other recourse, he says, than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So David flees from Israel because he has persuaded himself that the hand of Saul is about to prevail against him by taking his life. Who cares what God has spoken to him at this time? That's his actions. But what's fascinating to me Given the abundance of evidence in his recent experiences, Saul was impotent against David to do anything. God was protecting him. Remember in chapter 23, Saul's men were encircling David to stretch out their hand and seize him when a sudden assault from the Philistines diverted his forces and they took off and David was once again free. Also in chapter 24, when Saul came hunting for David, the Lord placed Saul at David's mercy, remember, in the cave of En Gedi. Saul goes in to relieve himself. David could have destroyed him right there, but he didn't. And most recently, Pastor Brian spoke about this, when God brought a deep sleep over Saul and all of his army, and David, they go in and take Saul's spear. All of this was strong evidence that God was protecting David. All of the promises he had made to David, that he was going to take the throne. And even when Abigail intervened to deflect David from his violent plans against her husband Nabal, she spoke of these things as common knowledge. She said in 1 Samuel chapter 25, 
Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battle of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, notice with who? With the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. How then does David conclude, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul? He had counseled his heart once again with unbelieving words. So it's no wonder that his heart responded not with faith, but in folly and unbelief, all of a sudden things begin to change because he was not meditating on the words of the Lord. Proverbs 28, 26 tells us, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. We know David was acting in, in unbelief when he fled from Israel, but his folly lay of all of the places he could have escaped to he returns to the enemy city of Gath. He had just slain Goliath many years ago, as if they had forgotten about that. He had gone there before at the beginning of Saul's persecution. Remember, he goes there once before, and he acts like a madman in 1 Samuel chapter 21 in order to save himself from the Philistines. But now he goes back there for safety in such an ungodly place. I love what A.W. Pink says about this. This is what he says. David accredits his folly to a tendency to unbelief that every believer experiences when we allow unbelief to dominate us. When we allow unbelief to dominate us, God is forgotten and his plan of deliverance is forgotten. The only thing we can think about in those times, as David is thinking of here, is his own ease his obs- that obsesses his mind. I'm tired. I'm tired of Saul chasing me. I need rest. And I'm reminded of Jesus when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And now the tempter came to him. And he said, if you are the son of God, Command that these stones become bread. And then he said, throw yourself down. All these things, his last temptation, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. There was no ease with Jesus also. Jesus was tired. He was hungry. But Jesus defeated the enemy. How? By the word of God. So while the tempter's assault was on David, All David had to do was trust in the Lord and lean not to his understanding, but he did not do that. And so now we will see him fleeing further and further, not in faith, but in unbelief. And that's the way it is with all of us. Any believer, when we allow anxiety and fear to overtake us, We go outside the will of God and we use unspiritual means or devices to give us rest 
and ease. And God is saying when those things are happening, when the pressure is on, that's when we should have a closer walk with the Lord. Because the Lord, he has promised us. We are sealed with the spirit of redemption, Ephesians tells us. So we're going to make it home. But how's the ride going to be? Are we going to stay safe and secure in the arms of God? Are we going to go astray and he's going to have to reel us back in time and time again? It says in verse 2, Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. You have to understand David was concerned with, about his wife, Ananoam and Abigail. And in addition to those two wives he had, they say with these 600 men, he had about 2,000 people in his camp. And so he had to be concerned about everyone. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ananoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. So it seems as if David's plan has succeeded, but it may look that way. And David is being prudent, but you can be prudent, but you still need to walk by faith. Once again, God had promised David that he was going to take the throne. The same God who promised him this salvation had also entrusted him the the care with all of these people that was with him. And I want to say this, just because David, God had promised David, you're going to be on the throne. David, once again, had about 2,000 people. So he still had to use wise counsel, being prudent, even though God had told him, look, you're going to be on the throne. You just don't uh, throw your, 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 your whims to the wind and say, okay, I'm going to be on the throne so I can live, I can act any way I want to. It reminds me of Jesus. I think it's in John chapter 7. Jesus, his brothers had asked him, are you going up to the Feast of Tabernacles? And Jesus says, no, I'm not going right now. Why did he say that? Because he knew they were already looking to arrest him. So he waited a couple of days and he went up. Jesus was being wise. He was being prudent, even though the will of God, he understood that his hour had not come yet. So what I'm saying, we're walking in this depraved world. We know we're going to make it home. But we still must be wise. Ephesians says we must walk circumspectly, acrobos, watching every move we make and what's going around us because we lived in a depraved time and world. So just because we're going to make it home, we need to be wise in our walk. That's what David is doing here also. Ephesians 5, 15, 16, it says this, See then that you walk circumspectly, acrobos, not as fools, because there are believers who walk like fools, and they get a lot of bumps on their heads and other places. But the Holy Spirit says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. That's why we're here, because the days are evil. So David 
He, he, he cannot let emotions, feelings overcome him. He knows what the will of God is. And no matter how he might feel, he needs to walk in the will of God. That's his fortress. God is his fortress. God is his protection. And as long as he's walking in the will of God, everything is going to be all right. That would be like a Christian mom who has married a violent husband. And we know what the scripture says about divorce and other things. What do you do? You have to be wise. I don't want to uh, be abused. I don't want my children to be abused. So you live that way. You separate. If it goes south, anything else, I think there's room for divorce there. But my point is, we have to be wise. Do you stay in that relationship and let and die? I don't think God wants that. And so once again, we need to live wise uh, lives and counsel in the Word of God. Matter of fact, the Bible speaks of lay hands on no man suddenly. Because not only myself and the pastors and the elders here, we have a responsibility to the flock. So when people come in and we think they might be, he might be a good elder or he might be, do, be a good whatever, or deacon, whatever, lay hands on no man suddenly. Even missionaries, I believe before I go to anywhere, it's wise to look and see the climate in that area. Are they killing believers there? All of these other things. We have to be wise. And then we make wise decisions. Even though the righteous should be as bold as a lion, we still must walk circumspectly. That's what God wants us to do. Anytime David would get out of the will of the Lord, anytime Israel, Israel is the salvation, it's the promised land in the Old Testament. And anytime anyone would go outside of, of, of the promised land, outside of Israel, they would always get entangled with sin, folly, or something bad would happen to them. Think about Abraham in Genesis uh, 12. He goes down to Egypt. A famine is in the land. He gets in trouble. They take uh, Sarah. Even though the Lord blessed them on the way out, it wasn't because of Abraham. It was because of Sarah being obedient to her husband. Think about uh, Lot, chapter 13 of Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah. He takes his family. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. And then his family paid the price for that. Think about Elimelech, uh, Ruth chapter 4, I think. When he goes to Moab with his family and he loses both his sons and, he, and loses his life, when he should have stayed in Bethlehem, Judah. That's where God wanted him to stay. So anytime you go outside of the promised land, that's really the will of God, there's going to be trouble. That's the way it is with every sheep of Jesus' flock. Anytime we're walking in the way we should walk 
in the pattern of life, in the role we should, we're going to be okay even if hard times come. But it's when pressure sets on us and we decide to go opposite ways or different ways, that's when we may get entangled in sin and makes things tougher than it should be for us. And that's what's happening to David here. Verse 5, then David said to Achish, if I have now found favor in your eyes. So he's come to the, to the Philistines camp at Gath, one of the five cities. And it seems as if Achish is looking at David. I've heard of you, David. I know what you did. It's been many of years since the, since the young lady has sang, David, Saul has killed his thousand, David his tens of thousands. But you've been doing a lot of things now, David. So I know about you. Then David said to Achish, if I have now found favor in your eyes, because he's thinking, Achish, that David has turned against Saul and he, he's willing to go to battle with me. Let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? I don't think he was going to put him there anyway, but flattery in this case, we'll get you everywhere because that's what David is doing. All he's trying to do is flatter uh, Achish right now. And so they have this mutual agreement that, okay, David, I'll put you in the town of Ziglag. You won't be on my front porch. I won't have to feed you and have provision, make provision for you and all of these people. And that was perfect for David because David also had a different plan, a different agenda. He says in verse 6, so Achish gave him Ziglag that day. Remember, Ziglag was in the Judean foothills. When Joshua allotted the land to the 12 tribes, Ziglag was given to Judah, and Judah never conquered Ziglag. It wasn't until David goes here that he finally he conquers Ziglag here. So even in David compromising ways, he's still benefiting the Lord. So it says, therefore, Ziglag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months, 16 months. And David, he's balancing, he, he, a delicate balancing act he's trying to do. He's trying to protect act like he doesn't care for Israel, he doesn't care for Saul, and he's in Achish, the Philistines' camp, and that's a delicate balancing act he's trying to make. Abigail, once again, had warned David when he was going to destroy Nabal and all the males in his household. It says this in chapter 25, 30, and 31. Notice what, what she says, and it, and it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, David knows the promises, and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, what you're about to do, David, slaughter all these men, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. In fact, this is exactly what Achish is trying to do. That's his thought process because it says in verse 12 of this chapter, so Achish believed David saying, 
He, had met, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. So David is scheming. Achish is scheming. But this is precisely what David wanted Achish to think. And David would start conducting raids all over that, that countryside where he's going to be at. And all of these perennial enemies of Israel, David is going to attack them. He tells us in verse 8, And David and his men went up and raided the Gergesites, the Gersites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. So David was utterly effective in both wiping out his enemies and covering up his trail. I love Westerns. I tell you guys this all the time. And, and this is like a Western, like where it says, dead men tell no tales because he's killing everybody. So they can't go back and tell on him what he's doing. But the problem is all of the principles, I'll even call it all of the righteousness that David has shown forth in the cave of En He's left all of that aside because, once again, he's not walking by faith anymore. He's lying. He's compromised. He's being deceptive, and he's being ruthless, and that will become a staple in his life as far as now. And he's saying it's all because I'm doing the right thing. I'm just doing it for the wrong reason. It's for God's glory, and it's not here. Verse 10 tells us, Then Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeramalites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, Thus David did, and thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. For all the truth there may be in that assessment, what they're saying, it also remains true that David was becoming, he's practicing deceit. And also, he's violating God's law. Even though Achish was a a pagan Philistines, David still should have shown integrity to his word. And we know he's not doing that. And it's all because of his lack of faith. And now he's in an ungodly territory and he's being compromised. And all of this is going to come back to almost bite him. Only for the grace of God, David doesn't do what he was probably going to do. David didn't write. (laughs) That's okay. At this time, David didn't write any Psalms. He wasn't meditating on God's word. He wasn't around uh, uh, 
like-minded believers, and that's the way it always is. Either when pressure comes, up, comes in our lives, the believer will do one or two things. They will draw closer to the Lord and closer to the body, or they will grow farther away from the Lord and farther away from the body. And the, the latter one is what the enemy wants us to do. I'm reminded, I think it's in the book of Numbers. And as we know, the book of Numbers, the children of Israel are just complaining, complaining, and complaining. God sends the quail. And when God sends the quail, the scriptures, the Holy Spirit says, and those in the outer part were consumed. That's the way it is. That's a principle. When pressure comes and when trouble comes, if we don't draw close to the Lord, those on the outer parts that are compromised, that's where the enemy goes first and foremost. That's where judgment starts first and foremost. That's why when, when, when the trouble comes, even though it has to filter through the hands of God, once again, you flee from temptation. You stay under trials. And that's what we must do. Psalms 34, David should have remembered his psalms because he, he wrote this psalm at En Gedi. Psalms 34, 13 tells us in 14, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And the sting of the rebuke comes from James. It's not the hearers of the word that are justified, but it's the doers. So we can say it all we want, but are we yielding to what the word says? We'll look at a few verses in chapter 28. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. Don't know how long has it been, five years? Commentators don't let us know that this battle is about to happen. But one thing I believe is true. Now that David has gone to the side of the Philistines with his 600 men of war, Achish says, hey, the odds are in my favor. It's time to go to battle with the children of Israel. And so once again, David is, he's in a compromising position. And now he's going to have to demonstrate his loyalty to Achish. And, and, and Achish is going to put him to the test because he's going to lay down his marker. He's going to say, okay, David, I've let you stay in the land. You've been talking a good game, but now it's time to back it up. That's the way it always is. The hypocrite will always be found out. And the saddest place for the hypocrite to be found out is when he stands in front of the Lord. David, God is going to intervene and save him here. And it says, And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. So David said to Achish, I'm sure he's still cool, calm, and collective. Surely you know what your servant can do. 
He's saying, you know I'm a bad boy. You know I can help you out. That's what he's saying. He's bragging on himself. And Achish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. You're going to be my bodyguard forever. And then the Holy Spirit comes and lets us know, now Samuel had died. And I believe the Spirit tells us that Samuel has died for two reasons. And the first one, Samuel wasn't, he's not going to be there to rescue them. And second, Saul, in this trouble he's about to get himself into, Samuel is not going to be there to tell him how to get out of it, to give him sound advice. Now, Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah, in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Mediums, or they, necromancers, uh, they dealt with so-called familiar spirits. The, the, the uh, mediums used more of water. I don't know if it was water and a glass, and they would try to conjure up a spirit. But the spiritists, they're called Udunai, a spirit of divination. Remember, I can't think of the young lady's name in the book of Acts, but she had, a, the word was she had a spirit of python. And this is what this spiritist is, a spirit of python here. Saul had put them all out of the land, and that was accordance to God's word in Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12. It says this, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, Moloch, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. These people and their acts were an abomination to God. He goes on to say in verse 12, For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from from before you. That was Saul's job, and I guess he did that pretty well right here. At least he thought he did. Verse, Verse 4, Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. I love Gilboa. Gilboa is famous. It's famous for Barak in the book of Judges. When he went to war, remember, there was a great storm, almost a hurricane, Judges speaks of. And it was dry in the valley. And then this hurricane and this storm comes supernaturally, of course. And it floods the entire place, the chariots, and the men of war couldn't go out. And Barak and his men devastated that army. The same place Gilboa was the place where Gideon and the real 300 men fought against the Midianites. And the scripture tells us they were like the sand on the seashore, uncountable. And God's supernatural power comes and they defeat them. Saul had all of that going for him. But it was out the window because Saul had turned his back on Yahweh God. It said, tells us in verse 5, When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, 
he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Saul was known for being afraid. He was afraid all the way up until the time when he finally meets Samuel the prophet. He tells him, when you leave me, Samuel said, when you leave me, you're going to see these three men that are going to be prophesying, and then you'll know what to do. And Scripture says, when he left Samuel, God gave him a different heart. And we'll, we'll look at that for a minute. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Those were the three ways that the Lord would speak to someone in the Old Testament, the three most typical ways he would do that. By dreams, uh, it, was, it was the Lord who says, I speak to prophets by visions and dreams. I, I think I'm right. But he said, not to my, not to my man Moses. <laughs> I speak to him pay to pay, face to face. Moses was a special dude, intimately. But then it was also the Urim, and we talked about this Sunday. Over that breastplate, there were two uh, stones. I don't know. Some say it was a black and a white stone. Maybe, maybe it could have been two black, two white stones, lights and perfection, but you would ask the will of God and whatever, I guess the dye or whatever. Maybe one did light up. I don't know. I have to ask the Lord about that. But you would get direction with the Urim and the Thuman. But how is God going to speak to Saul? Either dreams or vision, Urim, or the prophets, he had just went to Nob a few years back and killed all of the, of the priests there, and he thinks the Lord is going to speak to him? He's not going to do that. So he has a problem here. And, and the time where he needs Yahweh the most because of Sam, uh, Saul in his in unrepentant heart, the day that he wants to hear from the Lord, God doesn't answer him. Joel said this, and, and uh, Paul echoes it when he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All Saul was doing, he was going through the mechanics, he was going through the motions, pretending and acting as if he wanted to know the Lord. But his heart, believe me, was never open to the Lord. Because if it was, if he, if he would have ever truly repented, God would have came to him. But he never did that. Just think of Ahab, one of the most wicked kings of Israel, and also Manasseh. And just a little turn from Manasseh God reached down and saved this man, but not Saul. Why was God not save Saul? First Chronicles chapter 10, verse 14 tells us, this is what it says here. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Saul would seek comfort, but he never sought guidance. 
Lord, if you just do this for me, I'll do that for you. It was always like a compromise. Saul will ne- would never surrender his life to Yahweh God. He had an unyielding heart. And in the end, God had an unyielding temperament about him. He rejected him. Saul is the classic case of apostasy. And I don't know what your definition of apostasy is, but apostasy to me, and I've heard two or three different uh, definitions for it, but when I look at the Scripture, apostates were never true believers. They feigned to be believers, but they never were. They professed to be a believer in outward appearances, in the community of faith in the church, but who instead of engaging the Lord with true faith, they harden their hearts to sin all the more. It says this in 1 Samuel 10, 9, I was telling you about this, about Saul. So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. And remember when we were talking about this, that's not regenerate like the New Testament. But it, 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 it deals with the attitude or outlook. As long as Saul would obey the Lord, God's presence was there for Saul. God's guidance was there for Saul. But it never went further than that. Never did. Because Saul did not care about being a believer, about giving his life to Yahweh. Saul wanted to do what he wanted to do, how he wanted to do it. It was never about walking in obedience with the Lord. Saul, he was proud, he was rebellious, and God eventually took the kingdom from him and finally took his life. And Saul is a very good case of being an apostate. I love the Kittle lexicon. I have this, and this is what it says about an apostate. An apostate falls away from the faith. Now listen what he says. Kittle lexicon gives the apostate definition of a rebel. That is, apostates rebel against the faith that at one time, here it is, they claim they believed. That is, the apostate rebels against the faith that at one time they claim they believe. An apostate is someone who was never a believer, even though they attended church, sang worship songs, read the Bible, and acted like a Christian. The sad truth is they were never a real believer. It's like when Jesus spoke about the wheat and the tares. They look just alike. They look so much alike, Jesus says, hey, angels. They asked him, do you want us to go pull up the wheat? He says, no, let them both grow up. And then in the end, the angels will come and they will pull them up. That's what he speaks of here. We know that there are apostate churches. There are apostate people. I was telling, it may may have been Lydia. I was watching Fox News. I think it was before Mother's Day. And they had Joel Osteen on and his wife. And I was sweeping the floor or something. And when they're on it, I always 
sit down and say, let me see. Let me scrutinize. I'll be honest. That's what I'm doing. I'm scrutinizing and I'm, I'm listening. And they were talking about they were going to have this big uh, uh, evangelistic teach, teaching at Yankee Stadium. And they asked him, okay, uh, so what's your aim? What are you going to talk about? Oh, we're going to just talk about God and how merciful God is and uh, how God wants people to come out now in the open. COVID is about gone, and he wants people to come out the whole seven minutes, seven or ten minutes. They ne- him or his wife never said one word about Jesus Christ. The closest they could get to him was God. They never said one word about salvation and sinners repenting and coming to the Lord. That's crazy. It's that watered down, feel good, not gospel. And that's what it's about, you guys, the gospel. I'm not calling his church an apostate church. But I know there's apostate churches out there because the Bible doesn't speak, and, and this is one of my pet peeves, the Bible doesn't speak about faith. People love to talk about faith, faith this and faith that. The Bible speaks about a specific faith, the faith that was once given. It's a particular kind of faith. You can have faith, as we know, in many things, but the Bible speaks about the faith in a particular person. Revelation talks about, uh, in chapter 3, the church of Laodicea, what is it? Jesus Christ is on the outside, knocking, pleading for that church to open the door and allow him to come in. So that tells me everybody that's in there, that church, are unbelievers. They've put him on the outside, and he's wanting to get in to save. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He's on the outside. A politician said one time, the church needs to be more lenient and they need to be more modern and stop talking about sin and just speak on the grace of God. Well, I don't know about you guys. The only way I came to faith in Jesus Christ is the alternative because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, I say it all the time, when he touched down here, it was repent and believe. Jesus Christ, when he came six months later, it was repent and believe. The cross always comes before the crown. We should not be surprised as the world continues to go after itching ears more and more that true churches of God, we're going to teach the word because our job, not only from the pulpit, but to those in the congregation, is to spread the truth of the gospel. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about repenting of your sins and giving your life to Jesus Christ. I was the type of person that if I could live for 70 and 80 years and die and that was the end of it, I might take that route. 
Now I wouldn't because I know Jesus Christ is altogether lovely. But before I came to him, if that was, hey, if you told me that, I might do that. But the wages of sin is death. Saul is an apostate. Saul had ample opportunity to repent. I don't, I don't think it's Ephesians. I think it's a Timothy speaks. First Timothy speaks about of their conscious, conscious being seared as if with the hot iron. They've ran over their conscience so much, they're oblivious to the things of God. People say, well, how do you know? Maybe I'm like that now. Well, if you're worried about it, they always say Calvary Chapel is known for it. You haven't committed the unpardonable sin. You haven't, you, you haven't got there yet. But what I'm wanting us to know this evening, and I'll close with this. God is a merciful God. He's a long-suffering God. I wish I would have, I didn't bring my Bible up here. I wish I would have pulled that verse up in Hebrews. People are always... They feel like they're on shaky ground when you read that verse. After you, you've tasted the goodness of God, if you fall away from that, there's no more room, I'm paraphrasing, of course, for, for, for repentance. But he's not speaking to the church there. He's speaking of those who have come out of Judaism, of all of the sacrifices and all of those things. And, and then they turn back. That's what he's speaking of because if you look at the structure, not only of that, those two verses in uh, Hebrews 6, but, but uh, 1 Thessalonians, when he says, but I have better things in store for you. He's speaking of they, we, and then he says you, speaking of the church. So that verse doesn't even really pertain to us at the bottom part of it where it says we should live holy lives and all those things, of course. But God, there's more, and I'll close with it, there's more of God speaking of return to him in the Old Testament than turn. He's telling his children, the nation of Israel, return to me, return to me. He tells the Gentiles nations, turn. That's the way it is. That's the principle in the New Testament. He's always telling believers because we can backslide. Those things happen. But there's a loving father who looks out the window every day for his son, the prodigal, to turn, return, and come back to me. That's the type of God we serve. So those wheat, in my opinion, I'll, I'll say this, Saul was a tear from the get-go. Yes, he had opportunities to give his life to the Lord, but he never did. And he, he crossed the line where there was no more room to give his life to the Lord. Because we'll find out when he calls up Samuel. Samuel says, hey, tomorrow you'll be with me. He didn't say, if you go repent. You can be with me in the good place of paradise. He says, no, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. God is a merciful God. He's a gracious God. But that doesn't give us wiggle room to live any way we want to. 
Somebody please find that verse for me in Titus because I'm about to butcher it and I want to read it. For the grace of God, for the grace of God that least about salvation teaches us that we must live soberly and righteously in this present age. Find it. <laughs> because whenever, and the reason I want to read it, whenever I think I have wiggle room, I pull that verse up in Titus. Because grace is there for me to walk. What is it? Let me find it real quick. We got time. I'm finishing early anyway. I might go real slow on this. Titus. Yeah, here it is. Listen to it. Titus 2, 11. I'll read it all through 15. This is for me. For the grace of God that brings salvation. That's what grace does has appeared to all men teaching us, this is what it teaches, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. That same word, acrobos, circumspectly, in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance, appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that we might redeem that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works speak these things exhort and rebuke with all authority let no one despise you so that's what grace is for to live holy lives to walk in the sphere of righteousness not to live any way we want to let's pray Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for your rebuke in your word. The faithful wounds of a friend. You love us. You love your children from the foundations of the world. It's not your desire that anyone should perish, but all come to the knowledge of repentance. Father, I pray for every believer that's here this evening and those that are watching online, that you would give us grace to walk close with you, that you are truly the good shepherd. It's not our job to understand you, to understand the way you have us going. It's our job just to follow and trust you. Father, give us, increase our faith, but that comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Lord, pour into us. Teach us all the things we need to know to live godly lives, Father. That's, that's my prayer for everyone here. Lord, I continue to lift up Joanne Shabelsky. Lord, I pray that you would be merciful to us. I pray, Lord, that you would just supernaturally touch her body and heal her. Lord, I continue to lift up those that are hurting or sick or not feeling well, Father God. You know the needs, Father. And I pray that you would move on their behalf, Father, and just give us a healthy body. But more than a healthy physical body, Father, I pray for a healthy spiritual body here at Restore that we are all growing into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And Father, for 
Maybe we have children, nephews, nieces that don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that you will continue to work in those hearts, Father. That you would shine the light and the knowledge of Jesus Christ into their hearts and they would repent of their sins and give their lives to you, Lord. That's what we're asking this evening. And we'll be sure to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God.